This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. Let me start off with a quick correction here. My friend in the UK wrote to me and informed me that my use of the word coronated is actually not accurate, though I maintain that the word coronated is in the venerable Oxford Dictionary. I will defer to him on this one, uh, certainly out of respect. I would officially like to strike the record of my use of coronated in lieu of the verb crowned in my previous episodes. Joking aside, as always, I'm learning, and in the learning process, you're bound to get things wrong from time to time, such as the use of the word coronated versus crowned, and even some pretty atrocious French pronunciations. Though in my defense, I mean, come on, it's French. All right, well, thank you, Andrew, uh, for keeping me on my game, and I hope you continue to do so. And speaking of thank yous, I would like to extend another hearty thank you to our newest Patreon supporter, who goes by the name, look, it's Grandma. Love the name, and I love the support you're now showing the podcast. Patreon supporters at any level have access to a range of bonus episodes, and these include our complete series on Poland in the 11th century, as well as our continuing story of the goings-on in Ireland, Wales, Scotland, and on the mainland throughout the Norman conquest of England. And, of course, all the bonus episodes from before on the podcast. If this interests you and you believe in what this show is trying to accomplish, please consider joining for just a couple bucks a month. Okay, now to the episode. We're going to start off with a happy event. The birth of a child. However, it won't stay happy for long. This event might be the last pleasant occurrence in Northumbria for quite some time. As by the end of this episode, well, you'll see. Today's episode, episode 82, is entitled 1069. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. The year was 1068, and Matilda was with child. She was traveling alongside her husband, King William I of England, touring her new kingdom. As Queen of the English, Matilda wanted to see her new domain as well as her new subjects. But being with child, Matilda was also in full mom mode as well, and was eager to make it to the city of York, for all intents and purposes the capital of the north. It was large, bustling, somewhat cosmopolitan, Given the region they found themselves in, there couldn't be a better place to give birth to the kingdom's first royal child since the days of King Canute and Queen Emma, if you can believe it. As they approached, William heard word of unrest in and around York, causing him to ride ahead to scout the security for his wife. Matilda knew the time was fast approaching. She needed to make it to York. Unfortunately, William sent word telling her to stay in a town called Selby, just 14 miles south of York. Having always been keenly in tune with the game of politics, it must have bothered Matilda to no end to not have made it to York. But Selby would just have to do. She would stay in Selby for several weeks, giving birth to her fourth son during this time. William and Matilda would call this boy Henry after Matilda's uncle, King Henry I of France. 
in an effort to further legitimize the boy, as well as subtly linking the English crown to mainland royalty. Tracy Borman adds in her book, Queen of the Conqueror, quote, By giving birth to a male heir on English soil, Matilda achieved a vital step toward Anglo-Norman integration, inspiring greater loyalty among her subjects than her husband had during the many hard-fought campaigns he'd waged since the Battle of Hastings two years earlier. End quote. Borman would continue with a with an interesting tidbit that will come into play in the decades to come. She says, quote, Indeed, many Saxons would come to regard Henry as the only legitimate heir to the throne, taking precedence over Robert, Richard, and William. According to Orderic Vitalis, Matilda encouraged this view by making Henry heir to all her lands in England, probably soon after his birth, end quote. Now, when Matilda and Henry were ready for travel, William moved south from York. Things must have been hairier than the chroniclers want us to know, though, because, as Morris puts it, quote, North of York, the Normans can have exercised almost no meaningful authority at all, end quote. Though never one to shy away from a fight, he didn't want to wear out his welcome either, especially being so close to the borders with Scotland. William knew not to tread too far north unless he was willing to risk expanding the battlefield to another kingdom altogether. Besides, William may have underestimated the Northumbrian way of things, but he did pick up on the one thing Northumbrians loved more than fighting outsiders. They loved fighting amongst themselves. Sometimes it might be best to stay out of it, but the problem with that is that those infamous Northumbrian blood feuds inevitably poured out of the constantly boiling pot that was the northern region. In fact, Northumbria was up to its same old shenanigans over the couple of years already. William couldn't risk his wife and newborn son. See, you know, two years earlier, with Earl Morcar opposing King William, William simply replaced Morcar with a man named Copsig, well, this move right here, putting Copsig up for the Earl of Northumbria, just showed how colossally ignorant William was when it came to those ill-tempered Northerners. See, Copsig was Tostig Godwinson's right-hand man, and if you remember anything about Tostig, it should probably be how massively unpopular among the Northumbrians he was, not least because he sought to take away their favorite pastime hunting each other for decisions made by their ancestors. So in walks Copsig, and you could pretty much guess what happened next. Well, a man named Oswulf decided to act against the Norman puppet. But Oswulf wasn't just anyone here. Oswulf was the son of a man named Edwulf, that is, Edwulf of Bamborough. Dig deep and you'll recognize the name from the year 1041, Having been in open revolt against the new king Harthacnut, Earl Edwulf of Bamborough sought to make amends and asked for safe passage. Harthacnut granted it out one side of his mouth, while on the other side of his mouth, he allowed Earl Seward of Northumbria to pull the trigger on a blood feud between the two northern houses. Yeah, Oswulf was the slain Earl Edwulf of Bamborough's son, also making him the grandson 
of the legendary Uhtred the Bold, who died at Canute's sword back in 1014. And upon the succession of Kopsig, there in 1067, Oswulf retreated deeper into the peaks and valleys of the borderlands between Northumbria and Scotland. And Oswulf planned, and Oswulf created a stout force to oppose William's new stooge. There would be no safe passage offered to Copsig, however, not even one feigned like the one Harthacanute offered his father two decades earlier. Oswulf rushed out of the forests at Newburn, shocking Copsig and his contingent. Everyone gathered, ran into a nearby church. Unfortunately, that didn't help much, as Oswulf ordered the building to be put to the torch. As Copsig escaped, he was quickly and easily collected and brought to Oswulf's feet, where he promptly lost his head. At this point, Northumbria was left without an earl, but all Oswulf seemed to want was his ancestral Bamborough, and he took the position of Earl of Bamborough with gusto. He was known to have traveled the roads of the region with full intention of, uh, you know, cleaning up the streets, you might say, something most noblemen just allowed Reeves and other loyalists to do in their stead. Well, not Oswulf. Bamborough was now his, and he intended to make everyone aware. However, he not only dove head first into his role, but he also dove chest first into one particular outlaw's spear. So Northumbria, once again, was without any leadership by August of 1067. From William's standpoint, forget this Oswolf guy. As far as he was concerned, Northumbrians had chopped off the head of the man he specifically appointed to Earl. Despite the baggage Copsig brought with him, this, well, this was a direct attack upon William's rule. Thus, Northumbria had just committed a violent crime against the king himself. No bueno there. And what's more, William had to figure out who he could appoint that wouldn't immediately set these wild northerners off again. Copsig was out because he was dead, but that one taught William a valuable lesson in the Northumbrian ability to hold a grudge. Oswulf was out not only because he was dead, but even if he wasn't, William couldn't possibly allow the rebel to come into his good graces, even if that was a family that many Northumbrians could maybe throw their support to. What about that family, though? Was there another with the clout and the age to take over as Earl of Northumbria? One man stepped forward, a cousin of Oswulf named Gospatrick. And Gospatrick spoke William's language. Well, not literally Norman French, but rather the language of money. Gospatrick promised that if he were to be made Earl of Northumbria, he would not only throw the support of the family of the great Uhtred the Bold over behind William's cause, but he would also pay William a hefty fee for it all, the while collecting his taxes. Settled. Gospatrick it was. Until it wasn't. See, Gospatrick was a part of that failed uprising led by Earls Edwin and Morcar in 1068. So, Gospatrick was now out. And see, this is where we came into this episode. The year now was right coming right up to 1069. And Northumbria was still in an uproar, specifically now over the suffocatingly high taxes William enforced as not only punishment 
for their recent behavior, but also to pay his army that he continues to have to extend the contracts of. William, remember, was still at the helm of an army of occupation. England was hardly subdued a full, what, three years after Hastings at this point? Least of all in the northern regions. So while Matilda and Henry left the north, William knew his business in Northumbria wasn't finished. But what came next was yet another unforeseen blow to his plans for England, and it started with his next appointment to Earl of Northumbria. Imagine that. The Northumbrians have a problem with authority. However, I'll give them this one, I think, because the guy put in by William, he was a foreigner. Though not a Norman, curiously, this guy came at the head of what Mark Morris calls, quote-unquote, a considerable force, quoting chroniclers who put the number of his horsemen between 500 and 900. So this new guy comes with his own security force? Well, that's a good deal for William. And so Robert Cuman from Flanders gets the nod as the new Northumbrian Earl. Ha! Good luck, homie. Simeon of Durham is our best chronicler for what happened next. See, Earl Robert Cuman of Northumbria might have had a more modern ring to it, what with an unbelievable two names, I know it's crazy at the time, but he apparently had some pretty barbaric thoughts as to how to earn the support and trust of his people. Morris writes, quote, According to Simeon, the new Earl advanced leaving a trail of destruction, allowing his men to ravage the countryside by pillaging and killing, end quote. Well, naturally, this gave ample reason for regular Northumbrians to pack up and leave their homes in fear. However, it seemed to them not only their king had it out for them, but God did as well, because, says Simeon, quote, suddenly there came such a heavy fall of snow and such harsh winter that all possibility of flight was denied, end quote. It was then, during the late winter of 1069, that these Northumbrians had no other choice but to turn and fight. The Bishop of Durham at the time begged Robert Cuman to stop, that rebellion was fomenting in the hills, but the Earl ignored him and entered Durham. His men, quote-unquote, continued their killing and looting in their quest for quarters, says Morris. And Simeon wrote, quote, At first light, the Northumbrians, who had banded together, burst in through all the gates and rushed through the whole town, killing the Earl's companions, end quote. Robert Cuman was able to hold out in the house of that same bishop who tried to warn him, but the rebels had had about enough of it all. They tossed some torches in and flushed everyone out killing them as they escaped. This included William's choice of Earl, the Flemish man, Robert Cuman, the latest man to take a ride on the Northumbrian carousel of earls. With Northumbria sans another earl by the summer of 1069, if you think England was subdued by now, then you're sadly mistaken. Or Derek Vitalis commented, quote, the English now gained confidence in resisting the Normans, whom they saw as oppressors of their friends and allies, end quote. And confident Northumbrians was exactly why William was looking to get his wife and newborn son back south 
as soon as possible several months earlier, and why it was imperative that William take the time to consider the Northumbrian heritage and culture when figuring out the earldom in the future. Now, heads up, uh, we're going to juggle a few things here that are happening almost simultaneously. You know, it seems like the year 1069 was a year that everything was, well, make or break for William. Beginning with the downfall of Robert Cuman, England's about ready to blow the lid off how the English really felt about these French pony boys. In the summer of 1069, Matilda and Henry returned to Normandy and we find Matilda overseeing matters of local justice immediately upon her arrival. In her absence, it seems her son, Robert Curthose, handled things just fine. But now that Matilda was back, her rule was favored by Williams, therefore she took the reins. However, as Borman states it, quote, trouble was brewing beyond its borders, end quote. Just south of Normandy, in the county of Maine, which William conquered roughly, what, six years earlier? There seems to be some unrest bubbling up there. There was an independence movement of sorts throughout the county's nobility, and it was led by a popular and influential man named Geoffrey de Mayenne. Borman writes, quote, Before long, the capital city, Le Mans, had been lost to the rebels, and Normandy's hold on the province began to crumble. Matilda was now faced with a hostile and dangerous neighbor on her duchy's southwest border, end quote. Okay, so William, still back in England, was receiving letters from his wife all summer long about the stirrings happening in Maine. But with Northumbria still not quelled, the return of Harold Godwinson's boys near Devon and Cornwall, if you remember that episode, and then another one, Githa Godwinson, most likely being behind the big revolt in Exeter, all William could respond with was the demand for more troops. Matilda was hesitant to give more Norman soldiers to England, but, I mean, William was the king, so... But at least he had Northumbria under control now, right? Right? Well, letters from home weren't the only letters William was receiving that summer. After handling the revolt of Exeter and the fallout with the Godwinson boys, he learned that Githa, mother of King Harold Godwinson and senior most member of the House of Godwin, had taken what was left of her brood, first landing in Bruges before moving on to her kinsman, King Swain II Estrasen of Denmark. Now, I want to say that this business on the mainland, the situation in between Maine and Normandy, as well as those situations in both Flanders and Denmark, is fleshed out in full on a Patreon episode coming out very soon. So if you want the full story, let me encourage you to head over there and become a supporting member. Suffice it to say, though, that Githa made a stop in Bruges, Matilda's Bruges, to be clear. It's where she grew up. And it wasn't an altogether unfriendly visit, strangely. The Godwinsons were welcomed by the new count there, but alas, much to Githa's disappointment, she could not convince the count to take such a bold move against his sister's husband. Githa was forced to move on to Denmark. Morris writes, quote, Almost from the minute of his coronation, Englishmen had been sending messages across the sea, attempting to solicit aid from the Danish king. End quote. See, Swain Estrasen had done his best, 
really, to stay out of what was happening in England, even turning down overtures from Tostig back in early 1066, causing Tostig to approach the court, if you remember, of King Harald Hardrada, and the rest then is history. But Morris adds, quote, As time wore on, Swain became increasingly convinced that an invasion of England would have a fair chance of success. By 1069, anyone could see that Norman rule, especially in the north of England, was hugely unpopular. And besides, it was a region with strong historical and cultural ties to Scandinavia, end quote. Orderic Vitalis even mentions the strains King Swain was putting on his own kingdom in preparation for an invasion of Northumbria where he expected the strongest support for his intervention. Mercenaries from Poland, Frisia, and Saxony flooded into Denmark in the hopes of, you know, raking in some of the, that good old coveted English spoils of war. And get this, in addition to all of this intelligence coming out of Denmark, William was also hearing rumors from King Swain's court about a pretty familiar trope. Morris writes, quote, It was probably at this point that Swain took another leaf out of William's book and started putting it about that he had been promised the English throne many years earlier by Edward the Confessor. The historian Adam of Bremen, who visited the Danish king around this time, credulously included the claim in his chronicle, end quote. So, yeah, if, you know, crap claims like that worked once with William, then why not again with Swain, am I right? The Danes, well, they arrived mid-September 1069, off the coast of southeastern England, and then, like their Viking predecessors, raided their way up and down the coastline until they met up with some eager Englishmen just up the mouth of the River Umber. As for William, well, he wouldn't find out for a few days after the first raids, marking the time for the news to reach him, just about the time the Danes sailed into the Humber. Where was he? Well, he was out west in Gloucestershire, having a grand time hunting in the Forest of Dean, of course. Why that particular forest? Well, for our Patreon supporters, you'll remember this is one of the episodes where the rebel leader named Edric the Wild was causing a stink near Herefordshire. So, sure, it's reported that William was out hunting at the time he heard the news of the Danes invading his eastern coast up near Yorkshire. But why he was there is worth remembering, as it shows that the English, regardless where in the kingdom, were still, after three years of Norman occupation and rule, showing their disapproval for this new Norman yoke in some pretty violent ways. With the Danes safely ashore, the English noticed something quite interesting and quite unexpected. King Swain Ethstrasen was nowhere to be seen. In fact, the Danish monarch was a very long distance away from English soil. In his place, he had sent his brother, Asbjorn, to lead this invasionary force on his behalf. This, of course, was a massive blow to the English psyche. They expected a great King Swain II of Denmark, the man who had held off the incredibly oppressive force of Harald Hardrada for nearly 20 years, to arrive and save them. from the illegitimate Norman king and his murderous henchmen. Yet what they received was this 
this the stand-in. However, word of the absence of King Swain didn't have time to reach York in time to avert the disaster of September 19, 1069. The Danes were still a formidable foe in the North Sea region, especially since their attention and resources were now free from the constant threat from Hardrada in Norway. And the Danes were no friend of Normandy, particularly due to the familial connections between the House of Godwin and the Danish royal family, connections that, if you remember, trace back generations, back to Swain Forkbeard even. And with William already stretched so thin across not only in England in near-constant rebellion, but also his duchy on the mainland being threatened by the Angevins and the rebellious county of Maine, William knew quite well his days could be numbered if Denmark sought to seriously push into the island. It wasn't just William, however, that knew of the Danish threat. The fellow's man in the walls of York, on William's behalf, also knew of it. In addition to that, these Norman soldiers were well aware, as Peter Ackroyd states in his book Foundation, quote-unquote, memories of the Dane law were still strong. So, in light of the news of the Danish army arriving, on September 19th, the garrison at York began preparing the inevitable attack on York. York was quite simply the grandest city there in the north. Anyone who held York held the north, you could say. It would be foolish for the Danes not to cut right to it and head for York. It would amount to a death blow to the Norman hold on the north if that city fell. And with such deep traditional ties to Denmark... There, among the Anglo-Danish Northumbrians, it was almost a foregone conclusion that Northumbria would rally around the Norman demise there. So this garrison in York began clearing the area around their inner walls and castle by setting the nearby wooden structures on fire. As Morris says, quote, fearing that their timbers could be used to bridge its defensive ditch. Inevitably, the blaze ran out of control, and, the, and soon the whole city, including Yorkminster, was alight. End quote. It would take two days until the joint army of English and Danish soldiers arrived to see, the records say, the city of York still smoldering. Hatred surely ran deep among the English on their approach, and to their surprise, in a panic, the Norman garrison that had done that rode out to meet them before the Anglo-Norman army could settle in. This didn't matter, though. John of Worcester wrote that over 3,000 Normans died. It's just a bloodbath. Now, Derek Vitalis reports that William was, quote-unquote, filled with sorrow and anger. He drew his men together and hastily rode north to meet these invading Danes. But when he neared the Humber... His scouts reported the Danes were no longer in York. They'd inexplicably abandoned the central hub of northern markets, religion, and politics. In fact, they'd moved their entire camp to Lincolnshire, completely surrounded by thick marshland, a place called the Isle of Axholm. Morris sums it up nicely, quote, Whatever the Danish strategy was, seeking battle, clearly form no part of it, end quote. So William did what William did best. William went on the offensive. He was able to slowly pick off these Danes, handful by handful, but the moment he began to feel confident in how his strategy against these Danes was going, 
The rest of the kingdom decided to act, like like all at once act. England, bolstered by the arrival of the Danes, exploded with rebellious activity. The castle at Montacute was being attacked by men from Devon. The walled city of Exeter, again, still reeling from William's cruel reaction to Githa's little rebellion, was now being full-on besieged by warriors from both Devon and Cornwall. And this is when Edric the Wild makes his last major move near Shrewsbury. And this one happens to be a doozy of a rebellion, including an alliance with Welshmen and warriors from Chester and Gloucester. Morris adds, quote, All William's enemies, it seems, were seizing the chance to shake off his lordship. End quote. What was he to do? His kingdom had erupted, and it was fueled by the promise of another sovereign kingdom invading and ridding the island of William forever. If there was a time when William felt truly alone in England, well, the autumn of 1069 was without question that time. He was surrounded by not only people who despised him, his fellow Normans, and his claim on their kingdom, but these same people were emboldened enough to act. Up until this point, the various rebellions that popped up around England were serious, but manageable. With the arrival of the Danes, William's very right to rule, in fact, William's very life, you might stretch it to, was about as far from secure as it ever was. As William tinkered about with capturing and murdering Danish warriors in Lincolnshire, he could only guess what was happening elsewhere on the island. Winter was approaching, and he was stuck in the north. Was William even going to survive the rest of 1069? Well, in the next episode, we will see how the most critical year of the Norman conquest of England played out. <laughs> and this one, folks, it'll rip your heart out. But still, I can't wait to tell you about it. <laughs>